0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to our listeners in the Big Apple from across the United States and across around the world. I'm Jeff Goodman, and you've tuned into Rediscovering New York. We're a weekly show that showcases New York City's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Most of the time, the show focuses on a particular neighborhood, exploring its history, its vibe, its texture, and its energy. What makes that neighborhood special? And we do it through interviews. We interview urban historians, preservationists, local business owner, artists, and interesting neighborhood personalities. Occasionally, as we did last week with the stories of U.S. presidents in New York City, I'll host a show about an interesting part of the city that's not about one particular neighborhood. It could be about parks, a museum, the history of the transit system, the city in an age of a particular social or political movement or musical genre, I can't wait for the uh, show on punk, (laughs) or unique New York architectural phenomenon like Rockefeller Center. But I do promise that each episode will be informative, entertaining, illuminating, and of course, fun. And each show will be available on archive and podcast the day after the show airs. Today, we are going to be journeying through one of Manhattan's oldest neighborhoods, the West Village, And our first guest is noted urban historian and a regular on Rediscovering New York, the amazing Joyce Gold. Joyce is a recognized expert and educator in New York history, and for over 40 years, she's been guiding New Yorkers and visitors alike to rave reviews through her private walking tours as well as tours that are open to the public. On her site, JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. Joyce has published two guidebooks, From Windmills to the World Trade Center, A Walking Guide Through the History of Lower Manhattan and From Trout Stream to Bohemia, A Walking Guide Through the History of Greenwich Village. My, my, what a coincidence. We're talking about the West Village today. Joyce has contributed entries to the Encyclopedia of New York City. Her article, Learning on Foot, Walking Tours of New York City, appeared in the Parents League 2007 Review. And we have a hearty welcome back to Rediscovering New York. Welcome, Joyce.
1: Thank
2: you, Jeffrey.
0: Some of our listeners know about your personal history, but I'm sure some of our newer listeners don't. Um, You're not originally from New York.
2: I'm from a small town in Pennsylvania. That's where I lived until I was in the uh, ninth grade. And then my parents and I moved to Queens in New York City.
0: What neighborhood did you live in in Queens?
2: Well, first it was Bayside and then it was uh, Jackson Heights. Ah, okay. Okay.
0: How did you get into the business of sharing and illuminating neighborhoods? Because uh, you used to be in, in the financial reporting industry at one time, weren't you?
2: Well, I was a computer analyst at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York on Wall Street, or at least in that neighborhood. And um, I passed through a lot of old streets coming from the subway every day. And I didn't think too much about them. But one day at the old, old Mendoza's bookstore on Ann Street, used bookstore, wonderful treasure of a place. I picked up a hundred year old book about old New York and it was all about streets that I knew in the present. It changed my life really because then I started getting into the layers of time of downtown and nobody I worked with knew anything about the history either. So I've just been reading ever since.
0: In the Green Room tonight, before our broadcast, uh, we were actually talking about uh, deals that people got from old books from days gone by. Do you remember what you paid for the book?
2: Oh, probably under $10. Oh, wow, wow, okay. (laughs)
0: Um, When people hear the term Greenwich Village or the village, they think of bohemian lives, writers, after-hours parties, uh, the beat generation, those kind of things Mm -hmm. come to mind. Uh, but that wasn't, those weren't the origins of Greenwich Village, were they?
2: Well, the origins really were an Indian village called Sapo Hanakan. the Canarsie Indians traded with the Indians of New Jersey. And interestingly enough, that is now the meatpacking district today. So it's been at least a thousand years that that very western edge of Greenwich Village has been about trade and commerce.
0: mm uh, and when did Europeans first start living there, first start settling there?
2: Well, 1697, you know, the first Europeans come to New York, to Manhattan in 1624. But by 1697, the name Greenwich appears uh, about this neighborhood. Actually, Greenwich Village, that term is a redundant term because which means village. So we're saying green village village, but that's what everybody says. Out of towners tend to call the neighborhood Greenwich, which unbeknownst to them is the original accurate name. But New Yorkers never say Greenwich. They either say Greenwich Village or they say the village.
0: Somewhere I, I read that it, uh, in some places in writing, it was called the Village of Greenwich.
2: Uh, Possible.
0: Okay, maybe that's how it got Greenwich Village. Um, was it first a, a farming community, or was it, a, or was it a settlement or a town? Because if there if there was trading going on with, mm-hmm. with, with Native Americans across the river. Um, what were the origins of it originally
2: uh, as a trading well, that area at the southern end, the western edge of Christopher Street was fairly It was at the end of a sandbar, so it allowed access in unpaved road times and it was fairly near New Jersey, so it wasn 't as far to go. but the village uh, really predates uh, what we 've talked about already because the third Dutch governor, before even Peter Stuyvesant came on the scene grew tobacco there, and the name of Greenwich Village changed. It was called, as I said, Sapo when it was Indian, but it was called the Boston Bowery when uh, Wouter Van Twiller had his plantation of tobacco growing of all first European uses. People also came to visit the neighborhood to catch trout in what used to be a stream that to some extent separated the West Village from the rest of Manhattan. It was Minetta water, and it uh, flowed around a hill that used to be in the West Village, and um, that was where people were.
0: Oh Well, it's too bad we don't have Minetta spring water instead of Poland spring. <laughs>
2: sounds, like, sounds pretty
0: <laughs> catchy, but I don't know that it would be so pure and pristine now. <laughs> So w- when were the origins of actually a, a town there, when there, were, when there were stores and places mm-hmm. where you might even, you know, having a, a, a place to post things? or uh,
2: Well, it seemed like uh, it was mainly after the American Revolution. The oldest extant building in the village today is from 1799. And considering there are only three left on the island that predate 1776, that's pretty early. It was uh, in the western part because the area near the river, the Hudson River, developed earlier than the area around Washington Square, because in early days in that late uh, 18th century, there weren't good roads, but there was the river. And so people got their lumber, their timber, their goods, their copper around by water, So that's when it started. Now, the history of disease also has a lot to do with the development of Greenwich Village because there were always epidemics, especially in the lower part of Manhattan, where most people lived. I mean, the Dutch settled at the southern tip of the island of Manhattan. But for some reason, you could have yellow fever to the south, but it never hit Greenwich Village because in those days, there was a 70-foot high hill of sand. Sand means good drainage, means no mosquitoes, means no yellow fever. So people would often visit Greenwich Village and have a kind of a country estate there for the summer. And in 1822, if there's one year that the village develops overnight, it's that year. People decided not to go back to the lower city after the summer, but to stay in Greenwich Village. Today, there are over 300 buildings standing in Greenwich Village that predate 1835 because it was where people went to in 1822 and after that.
0: Mm. A name of a very famous and beautiful old church actually has to do with disease, too.
2: Exactly. St. Luke in the Fields, uh, an Episcopal church that started in 1821. Today, it's the oldest church in the village, is named for st luke who was a doctor
0: and when did the main chapel go up was it in the 1820s or i know they've had a number of fires over the years yeah
2: 1821 i believe is when it was built and it was a chapel of trinity parish for some of its existence 1821 when it went up was the year before the bad yellow fever and last yellow fever epidemic and the first year people got to it primarily by boat But by the next year, people began walking there.
0: Mm. Well, one of the things that New Yorkers notice, and especially people from out of town notice, is that uh, the grid's different. Yes. (laughs) Uh, When did the grid uh, move up past Houston Street to actually hit the village? And why are these streets really strange? Some people say, how can 10th and 4th Street go north-south instead of east-west? What's the story about that?
2: Well, the story about that is that the grid plan of numbered streets doesn't exist in New York on paper until 1811. But the western part of Greenwich Village was laid out earlier. And there were two main streets that were the original streets of Greenwich Village. They went to an obelisk, to a statue that used to be right near the old Homestead Restaurant uh, on Ninth Avenue, Uh, after the French and Indian War, but before the American Revolution. It was a statue to honor General Wolfe, who some claim uh, won Canada for England. He died uh, in Montreal. And that was a statue praising him. So people from the lower city, at that time that's where everybody lived, often would visit that statue for an outing, and there were only two streets to get there. One of them was uh, a street that crossed Minetta Water and beelined right to the statue, and it used to be called Monument Lane, but uh, the other street was along the river's edge, and that was the River Road to Greenwich. Today, those two streets have different names. The one along the Hudson is called Greenwich Street, and Monument Lane is now called Greenwich Avenue. Oh. and that is the street on which your second guest this evening has her restaurant
0: yes yes no wonder it's that curved street that goes uh, mm-hmm. up even though it goes, it goes through something of a grid Uh, There's also a little bit of an interesting history in in Greenwich Village. When people hear the term up the river (laughs) and uh, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, corrections and criminal justice, (laughs) they tend to think of Sing Sing, but that was not the original up the river, was it?
2: No, up the river was in Greenwich Village. And after the revolution, they built a prison named Newgate for the more famous one in England. It was there for about 20 or more years until 1829. It was right at the river, and that's where the term originated. If you got sent up the river, it was to Newgate for men and women. It wasn't until 1828 that the prison moves to Sing Sing.
0: Oh, 1828 it moved to Sing mm-hmm. Sing. Wow, wow, that's a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that we notice uh, in the village, in the West Village, is that there are a couple of wood buildings.
2: Yes, there are. When
0: were the building codes changed that required uh, construction, even of residential buildings, mm-hmm. to be masonry? What,
2: well, mm-hmm. here's the deal about wooden buildings. Wood had advantages, and it had a disadvantage. major disadvantage. The advantage was that they were less expensive to build than out of brick or stone. Also, they were lighter, and often much of New York is on landfill, so that was a plus. But there were a lot of fires. So uh, Greenwich Village has a couple from 1822 and from 1799, but once a lot of people moved into the neighborhood, you could no longer build new construction out of wood. So the rule against wooden construction changed and it had a lot originally to do with the population of that particular neighborhood.
0: Wow, and that would have uh, mushroomed uh, during that yellow fever epidemic, I think you're talking about. Very much, yeah. Wow, fascinating. Well, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a couple of minutes and continue our conversation with Joyce Gold. Uh
1: You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
3: 24 hours a day.
0: Welcome back to Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. That's me, Jeff Goodman. And we are speaking with Joyce Gold on this hour's program about the history of the West Village, one of New York's and one of Manhattan's oldest neighborhoods. Uh, You can find out about Joyce Gold's tours on JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com. And Joyce, you just started an Instagram account, didn't you?
2: Yes, this week. I'm very excited about it.
0: And what's the name of it? The
2: Joyce Gold History Tours.
0: Wow, imagine that. <laughs> uh, I've already, I'm have already i already following uh, Joyce Gold History Tours on Instagram. Uh, Joyce has great pictures of the city. I encourage you all to seek it out and to and to friend Joyce as well. Um, sorry, to follow Joyce on Instagram, your friend on Facebook. I'm still learning some of this stuff. Uh, <clears throat> well, moving ahead a little bit to the 20th century, Well, what, one thing that I just learned, what I didn't know, it's funny that we did the show about presidents last weekend, but some of the plot to assassinate Lincoln was actually hatched by John Wilkes Booth on Grove Street, uh, and that was uh, uh, during the Civil War. Mm -hmm. Um, When did the big history of the docks start? in the West Village, because it, because it was close to the water, and there were lots of businesses along what's now West Street, like bars and probably places that were not so uh, 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 gentlemanly and ladylike in those days.
2: Well, in the yeah. early 19th century, there were two very famous happenings right at the docks, and one of them was in 1804, and one of them was in 1807. In 1804, Alexander Hamilton... Uh, who had been mortally wounded in a duel with the vice president of the United States in uh, Weehawken Heights, New Jersey, was brought back to the West Village where he died in the home of a friend after his large family, his wife was pregnant with, I believe, their seventh child, uh, came to bid farewell to him. And then the country of America really changed in 1807 when Robert Fulton uh, took a steamboat. He didn't invent the steamboat; he he made it commercially viable, and got it to go from the Christopher Street Pier up to Albany and back in an incredible 32 hours. That brought on the age of industry in America. Uh, The docks themselves, very much around 1900, they were very vibrant. Every block had a different pier, and half of the piers on the west side were owned by the railroad companies, because before 1910, if you wanted to go west by rail, you took all your baggage down to the Hudson River, got on a ferry boat owned by the uh, railroad company, and took the Pennsylvania Railroad in New Jersey. It wasn't until 1910 when the Penn sea electrified and the original Penn Station opened up at 33rd Street that you could actually uh, not need a ferry boat to get over there. When did the
0: elevated West Side Highway go up? Was it in the 20s? Uh.
2: That's an excellent question, Jeff. Okay. That, <laughs> I'm still thinking about the answer.
0: Because I remember, as a uh, as a as a boy, uh, I was born in 1960. When we would go visit my grandmother in New Jersey, and we would drive sometimes along the highway or under, or under the highway, there were lots of bars, like C D yeah. bars, along the highway, most of Water which are now gone. Yeah, yeah.
2: Well, I lived in Tribeca in the 1970s, and I faced, I was on Vestry Street at the river, and I faced the no longer used elevated highway, West Side Highway. And people were jogging on it, but there were no longer any cars left. So it was pulled down in the 1970s.
0: Hmm. Um, when did Greenwich Village, when, when did the West Village become a historic district? And, and, and how would you say that's impacted uh, the neighborhood?
2: Well, the second, uh, I just talked to uh, the Landmarks Commission person today, and I think there are 144 districts that are protected as landmark districts in the five boroughs as of last December, and Greenwich Village was the second of those to be given designation. But it wasn't the West Village. It was the area around Washington Square, which is one reason they have wonderful low-scale remaining. Uh, The West Village was a little bit after. Uh, Some developers fought it, some high-rise apartments. uh, The Memphis downtown, for example, one of them went up because it was outside the Landmark District.
0: That, that, that is one thing you notice in the last 20 years, the scale of residential development, uh, really to the west of Washington Street. That's where most of it has, has well, occurred. Well,
2: in Greenwich Village, uh, the original water line was the southern half of the West Village, Greenwich Street, and the northern half of the West Village was Washington Street, one block, as you know, to the west of Greenwich Street. And um, the landmark district in the West Village originally Kept those same outlines, so it would have been west of Greenwich and again Street, not Avenue, and west of Washington Street that were open to developing high rises uh, until they weren't.
0: Mm. You know, one thing about New York is is we call ourselves a melting pot, or as uh, then Mayor Dinkins would call us a mosaic. We all didn't melt together, but we had all these different colors as part of our
2: stew pot. I've heard it called. You don't have to melt.
0: Were there any particular ethnic communities throughout the West Village's history that you might have seen? uh,
2: Yeah, well, a lot of it was Irish because there was a lot of discrimination. In uh, 1850, a quarter of the city had just come from Ireland, and there was a lot of no Irish need apply that kept them out of any job that paid much, But, but the only thing that was open to the men heavy back-breaking labor, which often meant at the docks. And that's why not only was a lot of the western part of the village uh, Irish, but um, some of the churches are still there. St. Veronica's, which unfortunately recently closed, went up in the end of the 19th century because people worked at the dock, they lived nearby, they prayed nearby. It's all, I'm, my approach to Manhattan history is what do people pass all the time, and why is it there? And a lot of Roman Catholic churches in Manhattan are much further east, near the East River, or west near the Hudson than you would expect, and it's because the prevalence of Irish people working at the dock and therefore having their houses of worship nearby.
0: When did St. Veronica's close? Is that, is that on, on Washington Street? And it's on Christopher, Christopher? Street, yes, okay.
2: that's right. And it closed, I think, about two years ago. They, uh, there is now, I believe, a singing group that has access to it. It may be a singing group connected to St. Luke's Church, if I'm not mistaken, but there is a big push to reopen it, keep it open, either as a house of worship or as some other kind of venue.
0: And I actually stand corrected. It's on the northwest corner of Greenwich Street and Christopher Street. There's a uh, a modern, well, '60s co-op <laughs> that's on the corner, uh, the northwest corner of Washington and Christopher. I won't comment uh-huh. about the aesthetic value lest I uh, <laughs> uh, 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 potentially offend any in, any of our listeners who may live or li- <laughs> in the building. Um, there's some fun things to mention about the uh, the West Village. Um, uh, the place where Friends supposedly takes place mm-hmm. is on the corner of, is it Bedford Street? Or yes, it is. It's yeah. Bedford. But of course, if you look at uh, the television show, there's no way in hell that anyone <laughs> would live in that size apartment who didn't have really good work. You know. Well,
2: it's very difficult to sell real estate to children of people whose parents who are paying for the real estate don't live in New York because uh, it just seems a little out of bounds. It was just the exterior of that building that was used for friends. And uh, you can usually figure out which one it is at that corner because there are a lot of people taking pictures of it.
0: Uh, And uh, Bedford Street also is notorious and it has the thinnest building in the city.
2: Yes, it does. It, It went up in the 1870s. It looks Dutch because it has a stepped roof, but it wasn't until the 1870s that it was made out of the space between two previously existing buildings. It's only, they say, nine and a half feet wide outside. Uh, 8 feet wide inside. I've actually been in it because it was for sale recently, and it's most famous, I guess, for being thin and also being the home at one point of uh, uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay, who lived in it with her husband in 1923, Eugene
0: Boisevin. She was uh, a more famous Vassar graduate than I am. <laughs> <laughs> Although with rediscovering New York, you never know.
4: Um,
0: <laughs> Another interesting thing is the term 86 came from a business on Bedford Street. Well, there's a question
2: if it really did. You're talking about Chumley's on Bedford Street. 86 Bedford Street, in fact, most easily found because it's a block south of Christopher Street. But um, it was a speakeasy during Prohibition in the 1920s. It famously has two doors. If the cops came in the front, you went out the back, and vice versa. It famously still doesn't have a sign saying, Chumley's because you were supposed to know. You are supposed to be in the know. You were supposed to be able to say, Joe sent me through the uh, caged-in front glass.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of the arts in the West Village, there's actually uh, an institution that's been there for almost 100 years, the Cherry Lane Theater.
2: Oh, yes. It was started. uh, Well, you know, the Provincetown Playhouse. They say on McDougal Street was started because they thought that Broadway in New York was too commercial. And they say the Cherry Lane was started because they thought the Provincetown was too commercial. Edna Saint Vincent Millay was one of the founders of Cherry Lane.
0: Wow! Wow! I did not know that. (laughs) Oh yeah. And of course, local history wouldn't be complete if we didn't mention the famous White Horse
2: Tavern on Hudson Street. Yes. That is a wonderful place. It still evokes the uh, waterfront pass that it was around for. And it's also very famous because Dylan Thomas uh, was there. Mm. It was, he drank in many parts of the city, but usually that was the last one he drank in every night. He was in town from Wales, and uh, it was where he took his last drink or 21 drinks, according to some records.
0: Wow. I don't think even I could do 21 <laughs> drinks and still stand, but uh, uh, I don't think I'm going to try that at any t- time soon. It
2: killed him. I no. wouldn't recommend it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Gold. <laughs> uh, I'll take that advice wholeheartedly. Uh, how has the neighborhood evolved in the second half of the 20th century? And One thing I also want to touch upon was, uh, uh, was part of Robert Moses' plan for Westway, would that have encroached into the West Village?
2: I don't think so. Uh, oh, for Westway... Was that his plan, Westway?
0: Yes, which was, uh, um, uh, thanks to Jane, I'm having a... a, Jacobs. Yes, Jane Jacobs, thanks to her work and, and her activism, Westway went out the window. And I think that was even before we had landmark districts. uh,
2: Yes, I think it was. Uh, Well, he wanted to run a four-lane highway through Washington Square Park. He wanted to demolish both sides of Broom Street. One cast-iron building on Broom Street is so fine, the Howitt Building, that it would have been dismantled and re-erected at the Metropolitan Museum. But people like Jane Jacobs stopped him, and uh, some of the people in the Italian residents of the South Village stopped him, and protests stopped him as well. This is the 50th anniversary of the Greenwich Village Historic District, the one mainly around Washington Square, and the Greenwich Village Society for Historic Preservation, a wonderful organization, has a lot of uh, talks, and even I'm doing tours for them to honor that.
0: In fact, there is a Saturday uh, in April that there's gonna be a lot of activity for the the society. Definitely,
2: yeah, right at Washington Square Park.
0: And where can people find out about uh, about that? Uh,
2: Gvshp dot org is a website, and uh, Mr. Berman, who heads it up, is just noble in h- trying to keep it uh, what it, as what it is. Unfortunately, and you might say because it's so low scale and so charming, it's uh, it's really under. Um, the prices are through the roof because there's not much supply and great demand. Mm-hmm. Of course, the demand could ruin the whole feeling of it.
0: Well, is not that become the story of a lot of New York? Definitely. Well, Joyce, thanks very much. It's been great having you on Rediscovering New York. I want to thank Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours. Uh, you can read about Joyce's tours at JoyceGoldHistoryTours.com and also look her up on Instagram, at JoyceGoldHistoryTours. We'll be back in a moment with our second guest.
1: You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
0: Do you love or are you intrigued about New York City and its neighborhoods? I'm Jeff Goodman, host of Rediscovering New York a weekly show that showcases New York's history and its extraordinary neighborhoods. Every Tuesday live at 7 p.m., we focus on a particular neighborhood and explore its history, its vibe, its feel, and its energy. Tune in live every Tuesday at 7 p.m. on talkradio.nyc.
1: Do you like comic books and movies? How about TV and pop culture? Then you've come to the right place.
3: 24 hours a day.
0: We're back to Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman. That's me. I'm Jeff Goodman. Uh, support for Rediscovery New York comes from the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage. For assistance in any kind of residential mortgage, Mark and his team can be reached at 646-330-4735, and the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. Tom and his staff can be reached at 212-495-0317. One thing our show is not, even though I'm a real estate broker, is a show about real estate, uh, but there is one, a very good one, Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. It's live on Tuesday mornings at 9 a.m., and you can hear it at voiceamerica.com. You can like us on Facebook, Rediscovering New York with Jeff Goodman, how novel, and also follow me on Instagram at Jeff Goodman NYC. If you have comments or questions, or if you'd like to get on our mailing list, please email me. Jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. Well, we're very pleased to welcome our next guest, a business owner who's been in the West Village for decades, Nikki Perry. She's the owner and founder of Tea and Sympathy. Nikki moved to New York on February 2nd, 1981, and began working in the restaurant industry. After many discussions with various friends on how English food wasn't edible, she decided to prove them all wrong. And she opened Tea and Sympathy at 108 Greenwich Avenue in December, two days before Christmas that year, in the hopes of creating a place for Brits in New York to come and have a proper cup of tea. Uh, in 1994, with her husband, Sean Cavanaugh Dowsett, they opened up Carry On Tea and Sympathy at 110 Greenwich Avenue, a British-style grocery to ease all of the crisps, biscuits, and chocolate cravings that British expats had while they were in New York. And then in 1999, Assault and Battery at 112 Greenwich Avenue started serving traditional British fish and chips. God, do I miss my chippy in Primrose Hill when I lived there about the same time in London. Uh, Nikki currently resides in New York with her husband, Sean, their daughter, Audrey, and Cuthbert, who is a very British bulldog. And today, Nikki and Sean are actually up in the mountains and could not be in the studio in person, but thanks to modern telecommunications, we're able to have Nikki on the show via telephone. A landline, actually, <laughs> in this day and age. And it's my pleasure to welcome Nikki Perry by phone to Rediscovering New York. Hello, Nikki.
4: Hello. Good evening. I love a good old landline, don't you, darling? <laughs> yes,
0: absolutely. Uh, they don't have many of them less these days, but I actually have one in my home. A uh, friend said I shouldn't keep it, but I thought, no, i got to keep a landline.
4: Oh, yeah. yes. I have to keep telling my 15-year-old daughter, can you stop, please, with the messages? I had to wait for eight hours before I got home to hit the button if I was lucky that was blinking with a message or two. So get a grip.
0: <laughs> did she uh, heed your advice? Or
4: <laughs> yeah, no, she's, she's reminded quite often about, oh, was, did you have to, was there texting when you were my age? Uh, no, actually, there wasn't. <laughs>
0: oh. We didn't have it's answering okay, machines early by. in those days. We didn't even because have answering machines in those days. You're in the mountains right now. Is, uh, is there a lot of snow on the ground up there?
4: Yes, we are about two feet in, and the dog is a bit disappointed because he goes outside and he crunches in and then slides about six feet down so he can't go into the woods. But that's okay, better, he's better off out in the woods. Yeah, I'm quite surprised. I come up here a couple of times a year to clean out the house of all the old stuff because we rent the house out some of the time during the year. Um, and it's amazingly different up here, so quiet.
0: Mm. Very different from the hustle and bustle of New York and also the West Village. Yeah, um, the
4: beautiful, beautiful, wonderful. Way. I was so fascinated by your previous guest, Joyce. Please do come and have a cup of tea with me because I've got lots of questions. I, I made the Monument Lane, so the restaurant that has been that's not there anymore, unfortunately, like lots of other businesses in the neighbourhood, that makes a lot of sense with the Monument Lane. I thought, thought that was really fascinating. Mm.
0: Well, a little bit later in our segment, we are going to talk about some of the challenges that business owners have been facing with uh, rent increases and uh, some of them not being able to be there anymore. Um, Where are you from in London?
4: I actually am from Elton, which is, but I was living in Blackheath Village, which is twinned, is sort of next door to Greenwich, actually, so... I like to say I'm from Greenwich to Greenwich. Oh, I okay. actually live in Greenwich, but Greenwich is on the, on the other side of Blackheath, which is named because that's this is also I was quite Joyce made me think of this. Blackheath in southeast London is a huge heath that is named because a lot of uh, the bodies from the Black Death were buried there. Oh wow. And the, the church that's been there for hundreds and hundreds of years is completely in line with the Meridian line that's in Greenwich, um, which I'm sure you're familiar with.
0: Yes, I've stand actually...
4: with one foot, you're one foot in the east and one foot in the west. And in fact, it's the church and the steeple, that's the squeeze song, if anybody knows it, the church and the steeple, the laundry on it, is that church.
0: Our engineer, Sam, is nodding his head, yes, he knows it.
4: Yeah, of course he knows It's very, very, it's almost an American anthem. But it is that church and that staple.
0: When did you move to New York, Nikki? In
4: 1981.
0: And what had you decided to move to the Big Apple? Uh,
4: I knew when I was about 14 years old, and I was reading fanzines about Mark Bolin, who I was obsessed with. And I was at boarding school, and it was always talking about Max's Kansas City and uh, New York this, New York that. And I, I became completely obsessed with it, and that's all I thought about. And my mother, who was a big traveler, had never been to America, and in 1980 came, went to New York with a friend of hers. And I was beside myself with jealousy. I mean, how could you go there without taking me when you know how I feel about it? And the next year, she bought me for my 21st birthday. That was in 1980, of June 1980. And then a few months later, I came back here with a suitcase, $200, left everything behind, my clothing, my Bieber, I can't even believe the value of all the things I left behind, but I didn't care. And I just basically was in love from the minute I got here.
0: Oh that's great. You know we had kind of mirror experiences. Uh, I moved to London in the fall of 1980 to study. It was on a temporary basis. Uh, and London was very different from New York, but as a 20-year-old, it was incredibly exciting uh, to be living there. You talk about Max's Kansas City. I remember uh, the Hammersmith Odeon and the Palais and uh, Susie and the Banshees and all the things that were just wide-eyed for me to, to be living in London as a 20-year-old wow. student. Uh, unemployment wasn't, wasn't good, and uh, when uh, the year was up, I packed up and came back home, but it was an incredible experience. So what year
4: was that? Uh, 1980
0: and 81.
4: Okay, so that's that's my year crossed over into your year, basically.
0: Yes, yes, indeed. We uh, <laughs> we probably were like uh, uh, ships Sh- passing on ships planes in, in the night. night. Darling, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I took Laker Skytrain over. I remember quite well.
4: Uh, yeah, no. I'd listen in the eighties when I came. This was the most incredible place. I can remember in the early eighties going home once. I think Virgin Atlantic had just started. And they were giving all their first-class passengers round-trip for $50. And all the first-class passengers were coming into Tea and Sympathy going, do you want my 50 Yes, please, I'll take a, a round-trip $50. And I can remember being, in those days, there being a helicopter that you could take to the airport for $40. And I was like the princess. You know, flying round-trip international for $50 round-trip. Hell, I'm throwing in the helicopter. Of course, you can't do that anymore, (laughs) not really.
0: Um, Well, speaking of tea and sympathy, why why did you pick this kind of business to go into in the city, of all others?
4: Because, really, it's the only job I've ever had. The first job I had at the age of 14 was tea lady at the Stock Exchange in London, and it was very bizarre. Um, working with all these old ladies, giving tea to the stockbrokers in the stock exchange, because in England, at 11 o'clock and 3 o'clock, the whole place stops for cups of tea and Kit Kat. But um, I then got a a job in a restaurant in London, several jobs I had, and then when I got to New York, because the only thing I knew at the age of 21 was waiting tables, and I was an illegal alien, so I had to go and, you know, find so i went to john street and i started working in a in a in a um very american diner i lasted about a month because i just could not understand the lingo with the whiskey down and the eggs over easy i'm like what <laughs> what what and so they got very frustrated with me and then i got another job on the same street in john street at the great american health bar um which i loved actually And over the sort of two or three years, I worked in lots of the great American health bars. I also worked on 85th and Amsterdam in a restaurant called, um, oh my goodness, it's going to come to me, Cafe Central. And Bruce Willis was actually the bartender. I mean, he really was the bartender.
0: So how long oh. were you in, when you were working in these other businesses did you decide, I want to do my own thing, I don't want to work for anybody else? I'm going to I'd accept.
4: been here for about two years, and I was out to dinner with some friends, actually the B-52s, who I'd met when I came here, which is another whole long story. And I was sitting with Kate, and she said to me, oh, this is such delicious tea, there's nowhere to get a cup of tea. I said, oh, my God, bing, 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 the light bulb. And that was it, it was in me, it just was in me for about nine years. It was an obsession. People kept saying to me, you're never gonna sell that idea to Americans. How are you gonna make any money with tea? Which I haven't done at the end of the day, but that's okay. Um, No one's gonna do English food. And I was like, do you know what, right? No, I'm sorry, I'm not having that. If you love something and you care about something and you have passion about something and you do it right, And you do it with fresh ingredients, and you do it with care, and you treat the people that are making your food with love and compassion and care, and you pay them, right? You can do anything. So I think I I sort of proved them wrong, really. Wow, Uh, that's great. Hopefully.
0: Why did you choose the West Village to open Tea and Sympathy? What was it about this neighborhood that had you said, that's the place for Tea and Sympathy?
4: Well, I'd spent a few years living in various places. I'd lived in Wall Street, 100th Street on the west side, East Village in several different locations, Midtown. Um, I'd done all sorts of places. And the West Village was always somehow very London-like, very um, magnetic very beautiful, very different. And I I have to say, I do think in England, you can always go and knock the next door neighbour and say, excuse me, can I borrow a cup of sugar? But in New York City, you can't really do that. Most people won't open the door to you. But in the West Village, it's very different. In the West Village, you can actually do that, and I have actually done that, Um. And that is sort of the feeling that I always... was always a little bit out of range. It was always a little bit out of reach to actually rent an apartment because it's always a little bit more expensive. But I worked for a caterer who had a kitchen on Jane Street that's now some very fancy um, uh, shoe shop, I think. And he was a complete and utter maniac. Hmm. And he had a, a house on Downing Street but he had parties in. But his kitchen was on Jane Street, and whenever I was working there, I would walk up Jane Street to Greenwich Avenue, and then I would go up, turn right to 13th Street, because I was living on 13th Street and Fifth Avenue in an apartment there. And I would always see these windows, and it would ne- I'd never seen it open, and it was very tiny, and it had, it had dolls in the window it was like eight or nine dolls it always had seven grandfather clocks wow. it was very odd mm. but I would look in the window over and over and think that is just that would make a perfect what I want but I mean you're thinking years but away and then one day when I was working at a restaurant downtown in Barocco I was sitting in the restaurant one day and the vegetable man came in actually I'd Bust my knee up really badly on a bicycle accident with no health insurance, but that's a whole other long story. And the vegetable guy came in. He used to own a restaurant called, gosh, a re- Do you remember? I Tex- remember
0: Texacana. but anyway, he
4: was yeah, he was amazing. That used to be his restaurant. Huh. So Mickey, he's we're going to
0: take we're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back to uh, continue our conversation. No problem. We'll be back in a
1: moment. All right. Thank you. You're listening to the Talking Alternative Network.
3: The best designs for your life start
1: talkingalternative.com
0: We're back with rediscovering New York with Nikki Perry, the owner and founder of Tea and Sympathy at Greenwich Avenue, or in Greenwich Avenue, as they say across the pond in Greenwich Village, and
4: or Monument Lane, as they said
0: before. Uh, indeed. And Nikki is speaking to us from the snow, uh, the two feet snow uh, up in the mountains between Saugerties and Woodstock. Uh, Nikki, what, how has the West Village changed as a business owner for you in almost thirty years? How have you what kind of changes have you seen there?
4: I'll just start crying now. Uh, it just—the whole place has just disintegrated into nothing. It's—it's it's very sad. The worst thing that's happened was the hospital going, and I could get into a whole story about that, but I won't. But that we told them what was going to happen. The commerce completely dis- disintegrated. Forty businesses immediately went out of business. And some of those places are still so empty now hmm. well, the The rent and the real estate taxes are beyond astronomical. I mean, who in their right mind is going to rent a five hundred square foot space for thirty five thousand dollars a month? I mean what are you going to sell
0: well sadly if, if it's... you were
4: selling drugs from there you wouldn 't make enough money to pay the damn rent for god 's sake. <laughs>
0: You know, you'd have to be in the old part of the East Village for that to happen. Uh, you yeah, know,
4: well, and, and believe me, in those days in Avenue C, they were not paying $35,000 a month rent, mate. They weren't.
0: No, no. I lived down there back, well, not, not quite as long ago. But, you know, sadly, it's something that's befallen a lot of the city. Um, uh, and you're actually facing some challenges now that, that you have a GoFundMe campaign for. Do you want to talk about that?
4: Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Okay, I don't blame my landlords. They are, I've got good guy landlords really at the end of the day, otherwise I would have been gone five years ago like everybody else. But still the rent is too damn high. I don't know from day to day if we're going to do it. And one, I've got two different landlords. So the Tea and Sympathy original landlord is very different. Um, the other guy is, is, is been very fair with me and sits down with me and talks to me. Because I am a person that cares. Look, if I can't pay my rent, I make a call and I say, listen, I'm going to pay you a little bit here, a little bit. You're going to get your money. And everybody knows I've been there a long time. I'm not going to let you down. But this is, it's madness what's going on here. It's unattainable riches these people have got. And I think right now we have a very good chance with the politicians that we have who are excellent that we've got in new york city right now of getting something done to help and i think there are a lot of things that we could do i think that most people do not realize small businesses like me have to pay a portion of the real estate taxes but the i mean i pay 10 percent over my base which means the year i signed my lease um But what happens every year is the real estate taxes since Bloomberg go up so astronomically that your percentage, or my percentage, has basically gone from $100 a year to $20,000 a year. Wow. Now, how is anybody gonna survive like that? Here's the thing. We've got $3 billion as a tax break for Amazon for the richest man in the world. How about We go with the good landlords who have kept their small businesses, and we give them the tax break that they then pass down to us so that we can stay in business and have all these empty spaces. You're talking about Amazon. Everyone's really disappointed about Amazon. Guys, if you bring the rent down to where it was 10 years ago, to the $7,000 instead of the $37,000, perhaps New York City could go back to what it is and what it's always been about, which is about people with a dollar and a dream and guts to come here hmm. and do your thing, your art, your Keith Haring, your your um, Café Central, your, which is Bruce Willis, your Union Square Cafe, or whatever it is. But right now, we that's been cut off at the knees. Hmm.
0: Joyce and I were talking in the green room before the show about uh, a famous bookstore in New York that's facing some uh, challenges, not relating directly to taxes, but you know the whole uh, concept, the whole uh, reality of, of of a tax break of the magnitude of this being offered to a business that's not here, versus uh, one that's been an incredible part of New York and New York history.
2: Uh, yes, you're talking about the Strand Bookstore yes. at 12th Street and Broadway.
4: Yeah. Uh, and they do they not own that building?
2: They do own the building but she's her feeling is that she has such a low profit mar- margin, especially after the uh, state and the city were about to pay all those billions to her direct competitor. She said if she has to uh, be proclaimed a landmark, that extra amount of money that that situation would cost her would make the business go out of business. Even though she owns the building, uh, she can't afford that extra expense of landmarking.
4: Yeah.
2: Nikki, where can
0: people go to uh, find out about, uh, about your campaign to uh, hopefully buttress some of this additional cost that, that you and Sean have to bear right now?
4: You know what? I don't expect people to buttress my cost. I expect people to pay attention and to listen to what's going on and stand up for what is right. Because if enough of us, like Corey Johnson... Brad Hoylman, our state senator, Gail Brewer, if enough of us go out and stand up for what is right and we sit down and talk about the issues, look, big real estate, guys, it's over. You cannot have it all because what's happening is New York City is collapsing. And look, there's old people. It's not just about commercial. It's about... Uh, rent control in 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 all sorts of areas. that um, if the greed doesn't stop, the whole city is going to die. It mm. really is.
0: Well, speaking of life around the city, w- one thing I wanted to ask you: with the changing landscape, um, do a lot of your customers come from uh, who who still live in the West Village, or m- most of your customers from from outside the neighborhood?
4: Okay, I have always had everybody from everywhere. All walks of life, all colours, persuasions in every way. Um, We have people from all over the country, internationally, and I still have lots of old-timers. I call them my old-timers, my old people from the West Village, who I absolutely love. In fact, once a month I do uh, Westbeth, which is obviously something that's probably quite fascinating to you guys as walking tour people. We do something called Dinner for One More, with West Beth right now, where if you a uh, volunteer brings a person that doesn't get out for one reason or another that's lonely, and I will provide the dinner uh, the whole i don 't care if they roll out of their drunk on the wine whatever they want, and they give a ten dollar tip um, I consider that to be what the West Village is all about mm. and you know i i've got pictures of dead customers on my walls
0: because I miss them so much because I've been there so long. Wow. Oh. Well, Nikki, our time is run out. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for phoning in from from the snowy peaks of the Catskills. It's been really good speaking with you, and we wish you the best uh, in the future with Tea and Sympathy. And, uh, Thank Ralph you and, very much. And Ralph and I will see you fairly shortly as well. Uh, I used to take high tea pretty much uh, all the time, although I wasn't uh, keen on Harrods. Fortnum's was my favorite when I lived in London, but... Uh, I'm going to Dying, mine too. is way better than
4: Fortnite.
0: <laughs> All righty. Well, thanks. Well, everyone, My pleasure. we've uh, just finished this week's journey to the West Village uh, with Joyce Gold of Joyce Gold History Tours and Nikki Perry of Tea and Sympathy. If you have comments or questions about the show or you'd like to get on the show's mailing list, please email me, jeff at rediscoveringnewyork.nyc. You can like us on Facebook, and you can also follow me on Instagram. The Instagram handle is NYC. I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Mark Myman team, mortgage strategists at Freedom Mortgage, and the law offices of Thomas Siaka, specializing in trusts, estate planning, and probate administration. And we have one other sponsor, me. I'm a real estate agent at Halstead. And whether you're selling, buying, leasing, or renting, my team and I provide our clients with the best service and expertise in New York City real estate. You can reach me at 646-306-4761. Again, special thanks to Nikki Perry and Joyce today. Our producer is Ralph Storier. Our engineer is Sam Liebowitz. And thanks to our special consultant, David Griffin of Landmark Branding. Stay tuned for At Home with David Theergartner coming up next live at 8 p.m. right here on talkradio.nyc. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
1: You are listening to the Talking Alternative Network. <laughs>
3: Hey, all you crazy listeners, looking to boost your business? Why not advertise on Talking Alternative with very reasonable rates? Interested? Simply email at info at Talking Alternative. Do
1: you like comic books and movies? How about TV and pop culture? Then you've come to the right place.